Hi, everyone, and well, welcome to a new uh, episode of Free Lunch. So today we're going to talk about antitrust law, and um, we're going to cover a couple topics. First, the history, of, a little bit of the history of antitrust law. Second, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, wrote an article, a law review article in 2017, laying out a new old uh, approach. So we want to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about, you know, what sort of a difference can she make? given the institutional constraints. And so to just as, as sort of a basic intro, Linicon is the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, which is one of the two most important jobs in antitrust, the other being the head of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. And as chair, she has a lot of, uh, she has a lot of power to shape US antitrust policy if she can form a consensus. So right now she's one of five commissioners or one of four, sorry, there are another commissioner is uh, waiting for senatorial approval. And so her powers right now are, I would argue, you know, limited by the fact that there are only, there's only one other Democrat on the commission. But we'll get to that later. And that I want to throw it to uh, Tom to talk about some of the history of antitrust law in the U.S. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe a little bit more framing too, Steve, before I talk about this. One way that you might characterize this Neo-Brandeisian approach uh, to antitrust that's emerging, particularly under Khan and under President Biden's leadership, is uh, as one that looks beyond consumer welfare to judge whether or not the market structure or competitive practices of firms are considered to be salutary or beneficial or desirable or at least legal is the idea. There have been other times in American history where this was an important consideration too. The rise of railroads, for example, in the mid-19th century gave rise to the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was an attempt to get hold of, uh, allegedly, uh, the large scale and the monopoly power and the monopolizing practices that railroads were thought to exercise over shippers in this particular uh, market. Uh, the rise of a general industrial scales through the uh, energy companies like Standard Oil of Ohio or other big uh, companies led to the formation of the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Act, which again were designed to hit at the broad size and scale and scope of companies, as well as practices that impinged upon potential competitors to operate them in, with them in markets in ways that benefited consumers. So this has happened uh, throughout time. Now, um, maybe a couple, couple other points in history are, are relevant here is that a lot of times uh, in history, his analysis of the historical record has shown that attempts by government to rein in large-scale commercial enterprises has not always met with success in terms of lower prices for consumers. Uh, so we can all reflect on this. Airlines was, for example, an industry that was quite heavily regulated up until the mid to late 70s. The regulation started uh, when, when commercial airlines first started becoming significant in the late 30s, early 40s. Regulation by the Civil Aeronautics Board was shown uh, to greatly reduce price competition and increase prices for consumers uh, who flew in these markets. Uh, that industry was deregulated in the late 70s, largely under the leadership of Democratic President Jimmy Carter uh, and Democratic political leaders in the Senate by Ted Kennedy, for example. So there are great examples of that. Um, it's not clear that the Clayton or, Sh or Sherman antitrust acts resulted in any real cost savings through enhancing competition uh, in any markets that are out there. In fact, the, the evidence is quite the opposite. So the, 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 the modern view that you talked about, what I'll call this neo-Brandeisian view, I think has a tough road to hoe. 
in terms of providing uh, evidentiary support for why their, their more broad approach towards antitrust is useful. And once again, just to clarify it, I, I would characterize the difference between the brand, neo-Brandeisian approach and the approach we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years as one as the following. The approach we've used over the past 30 or 40 years has been one which uh, evaluated consumer welfare and use that as the ultimate standard of whether or not we would judge a particular commercial practice or structure legal. The neo-Brandeisian approach is one which will admit many other criteria, such as wage growth, employment, income inequality, environmental effects, racial justice. It will include many of these other kind of criteria in judging the competitive uh, acceptability of certain customer practices. Um, I have a, a lot I want to, I agree with a lot of that and a lot I want to add to it, but I thought I might just ask you, since um, maybe not everyone knows who Brandeis is and his role in, in this, is there a... Um, just a short gloss on Brandeis and Neo-Brandeisian. You can give for, uh, for any listeners who aren't up on that. Steve, do you have anything you want to add? Or I, I can tell you what I think I know. Oh, Tom, you, you go. So I, and, and Greg, you obviously know me. I, as I understand it, Brandeis was a Supreme Court justice, so far so good, uh, who in some of his the early antitrust cases espoused this broader view and broader goal for the application of antitrust policy towards eradicating social problems. Uh, and that was, that was a view that existed for a very long time up until really uh, 60s, 70s, when a, when a tighter view of the importance of consumer welfare for judging the legality of commercial practices was adopted and embraced. By the way, you know that the, the use of consumer welfare when it was embraced was was really embraced in a bipartisan way. Kind of the politics of antitrust policy fell by the wayside. Antitrust policy became much more of a clinical activity. Um, I think Greg, you would might even say immoral type activity. It was just pure, you know, can, is this good for consumers or is this not good for consumers? Uh, it put a real large burden on uh, plaintiffs and antitrust cases to make an argument about how a given practice uh, was harmful to consumers. And I think in many cases, when we get to talking about Lena Khan's article, I think you'll see when you read that article, one way to read it is, is to say it's her expression of frustration with the constraints that the standard of consumer welfare places on plaintiffs and antitrust cases. That, that seems right to me. I mean, um, I'm just... At the most abstract level, you think of Brandeis as representing an expansive um, view of the the mandate on the purpose of and mandate under the Sherman and Clayton Act, as well as under a lot of different laws, but with particular to this issue, uh, and a more restrictive, giving less scope um, to um, to uh, what's uh, what's prosecutable under the law has 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 come to be favored. Um, leading to fewer antitrust uh, cases. Mm. Um, my own view is this whole business is immoral. These laws are wrong. They're destructive. They're rooted, I think, ultimately in envy and a pre-capitalist mindset where you think there's some either cadre of elite or the people as a whole are able to direct how an economy runs through means other than um, participating in the economy. That is by force. Um, I think the history of antitrust from its beginning is a history of the destroying of the best companies in America, the most productive companies in America, the companies that most benefited 
Americans and people around the world by any rational standard of benefit as indicated by such things, which I think are only proxy metrics as lowering prices, higher standards of living and how successful these companies were in a market, which was free. And this whole, from the beginning, antitrust has been about unfreeing the market. It's been um, the voice of envious mediocrities um, trying to destroy the great companies and lobotomize capitalism, the um, mechanism of markets by which new ideas uh, gain prominence. And even the idea that we should be regulating for the consumer welfare understood as keeping prices low or keeping prices in a certain range or keeping a certain number of competitors in the market assumes that um, there's some kind of way to know on high just what prices should be or just what number of people there ought to be in the market or just how it should work, apart from the choices that people make when they're on a market, which they're morally entitled to make, um, and which are, I think, the only standard here, actually, and which we can see when they're followed, um, manifest in growing wealth, growing opportunities for people. Um, so I'm not a big fan even of the consumer welfare standard we have you know, largely since starting in the 70s and largely since the 80s, but it's a big improvement trying to get at least some way where there are some standards of proof that you could say, well, prices are going down or people have fewer choices. There's at least something the prosecutors have to show that um, is relatively well-defined and it's semi-possible to know um, if you're violating these laws in advance more than could be before. So I think there's, it's an improvement over the reign that we had before and, and cons trying to undo it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it was great. I mean, we had the um, persecution and lots of findings against Microsoft in the 90s, the heyday of the um, current regime for giving away a web browser for free. And mm -hmm. all the kinds of things that are described as anti-competitive and et cetera, um, I don't think there's any objective standard by which we can say they're bad for anyone other than that some people don't like them and they can get a mob behind them to clamor about that. Like, and if you look at, uh, I mean, Khan first came to my attention in, in 2017 when this, I think she might've even still been a student at Yale uh, when this article was published in the Yale Law Review that got a lot of attention. It was written up in the, um, in the um, uh, major newspapers of the time. And it starts out, you know, quoting Ida Tarbell wanting to stare down, uh, tear down Standard Oil uh, and comparing uh, Amazon's business strategy to it. But no thought about what was the result of tearing down Standard Oil was it even needed for the stated objective? Standards Oil's a share of the market had been declining for years by the time the case was even filed uh, mm -hmm. against them um, and, and continued to decline before they were broken up. Um, prices had fallen by more than half in the market Standard Oil dominated while it was dominant in them. That's cra a crazy amount of... Uh, so by what standard was this bad? Well, they were big. Um, people are scared of big things. They were doing things that struck some people as unfair, although not by any rational standard, I think, of fairness. And that did not violate anyone's freedom. And if you want to compete against them, if enough people think it's unfair, they don't like the way Apple runs its market, or they don't like the way Standard Oil deals with the railroads, there's all the capital in the country that could be used to um, start competitors to these things. The reason that they don't, that we don't have large-scale competition, is because it's not economic to do. And the reason it's not economic to do is because when you factor in all the values of everybody involved and who they want to trade with and deal with when they're not guns out forcing them to do otherwise, the models that these companies are following are the models that people want. That's mm -hmm. why they're succeeding in the market. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why people are benefiting from doing this. I just think this is an immoral area of law that's been slightly reined in by a consensus uh, coming to power in the 80s that we now have a power-lusting um, uh, mediocrity trying to undo, to destroy some of the best things uh, in our country and in the world right now that are keeping us alive and prosperous. So that's my... Um, pulpit style speech again <laughs> getting a little more over really what do you really, really what do you think about it <laughs> <laughs> well so that i I'd, I'd be curious greg you know what you thought about um a- a- amazon uh a- amazon's deal or, or amazon's pricing with uh quibi so quibi was this company that essentially created, um, there were a couple divisions. One, they wanted to compete with uh, baby products, so you know, diapers and things like that. And in uh, Khan's article, she, she deal, details how essentially Amazon uh, priced below what Quibi could price, and then essentially tried to buy Quibi out and couldn't then started this you know, mom's club where they had even more discounts. They discounted the price of diapers like 30%, which, you know, as a, as a person who is a a kid with diapers, like 30% discount on diapers sounds, you know, pretty nice. Um, But so her, her argument is essentially that Amazon through setting prices artificially low because the Amazon could absorb the, uh, could absorb the losses that they forced this company out of business. And so that in fact, what, can, and then Amazon, after forcing them out of business, or after buying them, raised prices. So essentially what she would argue, or I, I think she would argue would be like, well, uh, consumers lost sort of innovation because they lost this competitor. And in the end, they ended up paying higher prices. So I, I, I mean, granted, this is a, you know, this is just one example, but, you know, I, I, I wonder what you think of sort of that example of the, you know, is a predatory, what, what you would call predatory pricing. So think about what's actually happening here. Amazon created a network that enabled more people to get more things more cheaply than ever before. A certain company tried to use that network to increase how quickly the price went down faster than Amazon wanted it to and thought it could and faster than the market could really bear as shown by the fact that Amazon was able to do what it did. So the price decrease went down in one particular industry slightly more slowly than the people investing in Quisby showed it could and would. And then Lena Khan in her um, uh, magisterial omniscience about economics thinks it ought to have. Who made her God? And there are other economies that are, you know, if, if, if they make diapers so much lower than it's, you know, it, all the money flows in the economy in different ways. Who knows what diapers should cost? Diaper, it's not like diaper costs were skyrocketing. People are spending twice before Amazon for diapers. It's just in the way Amazon wanted its market to be used, the prices of one particular commodity fell, or commodity, whatever, one particular item fell slightly slower uh, or rather faster and then slightly slower than uh, you know, one particular company's business model thought was possible. So yeah, let me let me just comment on that same example and uh, not um, the traditional response to Khan's argument in this case is that you know this is a standard predatory price argument. You lower your price so the competitor goes away, you raise your price later. You're recouping your losses by raising your price later. 
uh, in most competitive markets, you're, you don't have an ability to, re to recoup your losses because there are other competitors out there. So for example, I think I don't think anybody would argue that Kimby, Quimby and Amazon are the only way to buy diapers. You know, there's Walmart out there. I imagine there's dozens of other ways to do it. And it's not a particularly hard market to enter. I mean, consumer products firms make these things and distributors like Amazon and Quimby sell them, right? And so it's not a, I, the recoupment argument is missing in that particular case. Uh, so you just carry that on. Also, the her, her argument is if, if, you, if you don't demand that recoupment be, be shown to make this cross-subsidy argument or this predatory pricing argument, you can you could basically sue and put out of business every company in the world. You go into any grocery store, there's going to be products in there. There's going to be skiffs there that are called lost leaders, right? There are just things that they don't take as much margin on as they do other things. And no one really knows the science of what are the lost leaders is is difficult. I want to get back to the science of this stuff later on. For for a lawyer or anybody to come in and just say, wait a minute, you have to charge the same margins or you can't charge any prices that don't contribute to your margin the way other prices do. It's just, it's beyond the pale and it's the kind of governmental uh, overreach that causes inefficiencies and distortions in the first place. I think, you know, uh, I'm, you know, Greg's the philosopher, so he he's comfortable throwing around words like, words like immorality and things like that. You know, I'm an economist, so I have a similar view, bottom line view uh, about antitrust as he does, but it's based on another view, right? And I think it's just that the, quality of economic sciences is not sufficiently developed so that we can one for one, regardless of the business practice we're concerned about, tell whether consumers are made better off or not. So for example, you know, Standard Oil came along and drove down the price of kerosene dramatically, right? But it became very big. And, 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 and if you were to ask economists at those times, is this good or bad for future competition or technological development? They could not answer the question, honestly, given the state of economic sciences. Uh, same was true with when AT&T was broken up, right? Basically a monopolist over all facets of the information technology company. Did breaking up AT&T hasten the speed of uh, innovation and information technology. I don't know. We've had a lot of it since it was broken up, but I don't think the economic sciences allows us to know that or not. Uh, when Microsoft was, was forced to recede from the internet of things world, uh, is that, did that world become more competitive because they weren't hanging out there? I, I don't know. You know, my instinct is, is that it wasn't uh, a good thing that I would like to see in a company with that kind of track record, see what they could do in terms of competing in that market, but I don't think so. Now we're stuck with companies like Google, Amazon, and Apple that are the new gorillas in the room. They're operating in com even more complex economic environments that include network externalities, uh, all sorts of stuff that didn't exist even you know 30 years ago that we have to worry about. And they're just big in scale, they're big in scope, and the quality of economic sciences allows significant debate to occur there. And I think in public policy, when there's a lot of debate about what the objective effects are of actions, uh, it not, I think morality doesn't take over, I think politics takes over. So for example, if I'm trying to compete with Amazon uh, and they really are much more efficient than me, uh, I'm still gonna compete with them and I'll basically hire lawyers instead, right? Uh, so MCI, the telephone company, uh, that came in and right after the AT&T monopoly was broken up, they spent, you know, five or six years of all their capital on lawyers. That was how they competed. So I think that antitrust is basically the ground through which some competition takes place these days. 
And I think it has to do with the fact that we don't know as econ economists exactly what every business behavior means in terms of consumer welfare. Let me say a little about the connection between the morality and the economics, because I, um, not being an economist, but nevertheless, an outside you know, fan of the discipline or observer of it, uh, think it's right that we don't know enough to make these decisions. But su suppose we did, that is, suppose that information was available. Suppose that the science was 100 years or 200 years into the future of it, and a lot more was known about the things would work in network effects and so forth. Sure. Would that then justify um, these kind of things being handled by political power? I don't think it would. I think one, it, it's just immoral for it to be, and it cannot be justified. But two, the things that make it seem to need to be justified would then, that knowledge of what the effects of Amazon doing a certain thing on consumers or whatever would be out there in the world. It would be known by venture capitalists. It would be known by competitors to Amazon. It would be known that they're they're pursuing a, 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 um, a strategy that's gonna hurt their customers long run. It might take 20 years, but if, you know, uh, we can compete with them in this way and run them out of business over uh, doing this. And capital, unlike politicians, is able to think long-term, mm -hmm. um, especially when it's free to do it. So sure. I think the, 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 it's not like economics is in an artificially primitive state. It's a, it's a field like every other field that learns as it goes sure, and absolutely. hopefully we'll learn more. But the idea of trying to control an economy um, in the way that political leaders want to or many political leaders and Khan wants to, um, relies on taking a science in whatever state of knowledge it has, right. which is always limited, thinking right. that you as a central power or political actor can apply that knowledge uh, and force your interpretation of it upon everybody else, sure. uh, not respecting their ability to do it. And what it ends up meaning in, in, um, in actual practice because you're an elected official and you're not gonna be there forever, is that all of the competitive energy that would go into um, working these things out of the market goes into lobbying, paying lawyers, as you said, and jockeying for, uh, in effect, what they call crony capitalism or cronyism sure. right. around who's gonna be the new FTC chair and who's gonna appoint sure. the next judge and so forth. Yeah. And we unfortunately have too much of that now yeah. coming from all directions in politics. Right. And this is an example of it. Yeah. I think that's the transactions cost of being a, a private enterprise, a corporation in a democratic society. I think, you know, there's always going to be a part of your investments that has to do with managing the threats associated with that. You can look at climate change, you can look at racial justice issues as, as having the same effect on companies. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I view that as, as kind of political. I think that what the neo-Brandeisians are doing is trying to, what I view it as, is just an attempt to do away with any accountability standard that might be applied to the prosecution or the enforcement of the antitrust laws. But wouldn't the neo-Brandeisians argue something like, you know, okay, so we have this current consumer welfare standard and what we really should do is we really should, you know, we don't wanna, we wanna expand it just a little bit to say also include like, you know, workers and innovation. And cause the, the you know, the, cur the current standard is just slightly, you know, too narrow, and it it misses um, it's 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 missing some corporations that we believe are uh, you know able to say restrict innovation. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I think I think I think that modern um, I think economists would think about that as a, a an an implication of 
applying the consumer welfare standard because we have to think about future consumers and future consumers are, are benefited by innovation that reduces costs or provides greater variety. So they would just view that as a natural standard. Uh, wage growth, right, or worker rights. I think most that's, that's beyond the pale of consumer welfare. Uh, and, and I think that's something that's been explicitly mentioned as being part of a neo-Brandeisian type approach. Yeah, the, the, so in the new, um, so one of the, the Federal Trade Commission obviously regulates mergers and the merger guidelines are, in, they're in the process of being updated. And one of the things they're uh, soliciting questions on is to the to what extent should labor be included in, in these guidelines? Now, I, I, Tom, I think, and Greg, I think, I think I know your your, your opinions uh, on this. So it it's not a done deal that you know the consumer welfare standard might even change. Sure, that's right. Like there's there's still there's still a long a, a long way to uh, to go. Uh, but while we're on the subject, uh, you know, sort of broadly of the uh, law review article. Uh, Tom, did you want to talk about the call at the end for provisional regulation? Yeah, so I, I think, as I said earlier, I think the chief difference that I see between neo-Brandeisian and traditional or contemporary antitrust policy is contemporary antitrust policy wants to focus on consumer welfare. Brandeisian has a bunch of other criteria associated with it. I think that they think uh, that most of those other criteria can be best uh understood and controlled by manipulating the structure of industry. So for example, uh, instead of waiting for the ill effects of monopoly to show themselves, lists make firms, lists make firms divest vertically of certain kinds of activities. So let's make Amazon split up into an Amazon web, serv web services and a prime operation. Let's just separate them to limit the ability to cross subsidize activities there. Uh, or, you know, let's take, uh, you know, let's take an Apple. Uh, let's basically say we think the Apple store is a monopoly. It ought to be spun off and run as a regulated monopoly. And the rest of what Apple does, making devices and other kinds of things, uh, pro providing music services, they can do that on their own. So they, I think they'd be much more comfortable with, st with structural solutions that are applied early without before and without even having to ask the question about what are the effects on consumer welfare of, the, of these ideas. Greg, Greg, did you have any thoughts, or do we want to move move on to sort of what what sort of a difference can you know one incredibly powerful person make? I mean, I just, sort I, of powerful. Yeah, I just want to reiterate from my point of view, this is fundamentally an issue of the wrongness of this whole area of law, huh. and what we have is it's an anti-freedom, anti-capitalist, anti-right. Um, usurpatious kind of law. And what we have, and one that the laws I think are written in a way that is, doesn't really have objective meaning, that gives judges ridiculous amounts of discretion. And I think by and large, American jurists haven't wanted ridiculous scopes of discretion mm. and haven't wanted to leave that much discretion to regulators. And so what happens when you have laws like this is the legislature has essentially defaulted. The courts Ultimately, judges don't like feeling like they're legislators, and they um, they default to coming up with rules and tests that make things um, more um, standardized. There's a kind of simple test you can apply. They don't always do it perfectly. I think they shouldn't have to do it, and there's no way to do it 
really all that well, but it's good that they're doing it because they're trying to make the legal system predictable and companies can know if what they're doing is illegal beforehand. And so the, the kind of regime that's developed in the courts on the one hand and in the regulatory agencies, I think is a healthy pushback against a kind of, um, or a pushback, but kind of like ossificatory pushback against something that gives too much arbitrary power to, um, to um, particular officials and to judges. And um, what I think Khan is doing is saying that this kind of ossification of the process where there were these standards, they don't work. Uh, antitrust law has failed, she says in her article. It's failed to do what it was originally supposed to do. What was it originally supposed to do? Well, give us a way to take down companies that some of us don't like, because we think in some sense they're bad for the country, although we can't really explain what's bad about them. They're wrong that they're bad in the first place. And it's, I think, essential to what they're doing that they can't explain why they're bad, because if they could, um, there'd be a specific harm they would be committing, and we'd be able to say what it was and think about whether it's bad. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what she's trying to do is either get back flexibility or just increase the range of things that are now considered uh, illegal. Um, but it all amounts to, you know, profits are too high, says uh, someone from The Economist that she quotes. Um, too few companies control too much of the market share. By what standard? Who the hell knows how many companies should control what? Um, and should should run what? Um, these things are sold at a loss so that these things could be sold at a higher profit. Well, who knows what's good or bad in that? I mean, isn't that up to the companies and the customers to them to see, uh, to decide? Um, if you want to, you know, subscribe to a, a, a platform that gives you some things more expensive than you get elsewhere, but other things less expensive or more conveniently. It's precisely that freedom that we all have that has enabled companies, like in particular, Amazon, which is um, one of the most vital and important companies in the world and has done more to benefit human beings and to keep us alive, for example, during this pandemic than probably any other company in the world, given that it runs half the internet or whatever it does through AWS, and things have continued to run tremendously well. It's a direct attack on that, on the premise that we, the regulators and the people who elect us in their capacity as people choosing at a ballot about things they don't know, rather than their capacity as participants in a market trying to address needs that they do understand. Um, it's the public in that first, rather than that second capacity, and us demagogues who try to speak for them that are able to determine how our lives should run. And that's what I think this is about. I think it's um, it's the, the law review article, I think was a shot across the bow on behalf of something really bad. And I think that she's been elevated to uh, a major position of prominence is uh, in the government is um, is really troubling. Um, I think the worst thing about the current administration, in fact. But how uh, how what can she do here, Steve? Tell us. How afraid should I be of this woman? <laughs> I not not very not very afraid at all because there are a lot of there are a lot of institutional constraints. So the chair is the most powerful commissioner of the FTC. And just as a side note, there's some great speeches where uh, with commissioners saying essentially, well, if you're an academic, you know, be a commissioner. But if you're a partner at a law firm, like being a regular commissioner is a step down because before you got to make all these really important decisions. And now you're just, you know, one of, you know, five. Um, but so as the chair, she has power to essentially uh, shape the budget of the FTC, choose the directors, choose other top level managers. 
Uh, although she's massively constrained in that the commission now has uh, two Democrats and two Republicans. So in general, independent commissions have uh, five people, uh, two Democrats, two Republicans, and then the president gets to appoint the chair. So right now the FTC only has four. So this limits a lot of what Lena Khan can do. Uh, in addition to the li limits of the courts that you know we were discussing before and we discuss um, later. But so within that, so she's she's limited by the fact that you know she only has sort of one other, you know, I'd say, you know, ally. Although, you know, granted, if they all if all the commissioners agree, then you know, she has basically if she can form consensus, then she has a lot of power. But if she can't form consensus, then her power is very limited. And another thing that's going against uh, her, her power at this point is there's been an absolute explosion in the number of mergers. So if you if you look at data, so any merger that's going to create a company that has a value of over, I think the latest threshold is $92 million, essentially has to report this to the government. And the number of reports are now way up. I think the last report is in the fiscal year 2021. So government fiscal year goes from October through September. There are over 3,600 you know, merger applications. And there are all sorts of statutory deadlines. And so the FTC has had to take resources away from other activities just to process these, uh, these mergers. And so currently, um, so there's been there's been a slight scandal here because within the statutory deadlines, the FTC has been sending letters saying essentially like, oh, you know, you still have to wait, even though you're outside of a deadline, because we just don't have the manpower to review it. Although it is worth noting that 95 percent of these mergers get cleared with, you know, no other governmental um, action. So, you know, in, in terms of, you know, Overall, overall constraints, to, I guess, to reiterate from earlier, supposing the fifth commissioner gets, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Senate uh, confirms it. And he agrees with, with Khan and the other Democratic commission, then she has a lot of power to shape antitrust law, but just within the Federal Trade Commission. Without that, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, don't really see that much of an impact. And you know, the, the, the last thing I'll say is we were discussing this quote um, earlier, which is you know, essentially, do you want an FTC chair who's going to win cases or do you want an FTC chair who's gonna have you know, a bunch of spectacular losses that enrage people and that causes sort of a, a rethink of antitrust law? Um, so, and so, you know, Tom, do you, do you have any, any thoughts on sort of the constraints that yeah. uh, is, is facing? Uh, let me flip it in the opposite way. I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to put myself in her shoes and think about the opportunities that I have, right? And uh, I, I, don't think she, I don't think she really cares about most of the mergers that have to fill out a hard Scott Rodino thing. I mean, $92 million in a $24 trillion economy is just not a big deal. I mean, an example, if you look at the, the most recent proposed merger between Spirit Airlines and JetBlue, you know, that's that's two of the smallest ones. It'll probably result in a 5% market share when they're done. I don't think she cares about that, to be honest with you. I think she cares about the big companies that we were talking about. I think I think her, her um, 
better approach is, is, to, is to try to talk the other commissioners into doing investigations around consumer fraud, right, or deception. Uh, and you remember, there's been some, there's been some accusations, uh, say, around Google about how they formulate their advertising rates and whether it's fair or whether the representations that they make potential advertisers are, are fair and accurate. So I think that she could pick up on some of those criticisms of the big company to try to hamper those things. Greg mentioned this earlier with respect to Microsoft in the 90s, right? The settlement was one that just prohibited Microsoft from giving away a browser, basically. Was that basically it, Greg? And well, it also prohibited the... the, the there were a suite of things that were meant to prohibit them from using their um, operating system dominance to dominate in other fields. Right. And so the main, the main cause of action was the browser, but there was a lot of, um, in the, the, the things they had to do to, to meet the court settlement, yeah. there were other things to do with um, offices, um, making sure other competitors in office suites could... Uh, right. Uh, to facilitate other people competing with them in the office suites, basically. Right. So I think I think she, if I was her, I think she, I would look to the set the, the other statutory authority that the FTC has around fraud and and deception, and try to go after the bigger structural and, and impose similar constraints to what were imposed on Microsoft in this case. Well, so Greg, Greg, you actually mentioned something really interesting earlier, which is that for your friends who are working at Microsoft they had to spend a, a large portion of their time essentially dealing with the antitrust investigation and not actually, you know, not actually you know, innovating and, cre and creating new products. So it, it seems like that's also a cost of, you know, antitrust, these antitrust investigations. It's siphoning time away from say productive activities to unproductive activities. As of the findings, and it was, so So Microsoft wasn't investigated for fraud or any of those other things, at least as far as I know. I mean, those I think are legitimate powers of the government to do. It was, um, the issue was the same kind of issue that we have here. Microsoft had a platform, its operating system. Uh, Amazon has a platform, the, the, uh, the Amazon store, um, and also AWS as a platform, uh, sure. Google as a platform, etc. And are they using their dominance in one business, which gives them a platform to vertically integrate right. in a way that depends on the company? Yeah, Greg, which, excuse me for interrupting, but that falls under the rubric of unfair business practices, right? Which the FTC has the uh, statutory authority to investigate if she can convince other F commissioners to go along with that. Right. So that's, um, but those are the kinds of things, but there's special that they're a monopoly, allegedly. Right, gives puts them under special scrutiny for these kinds of things. Whereas if they were a mom and pop store, they wouldn't be a max. What I think is unjust, but yeah, I think it it, it does um, siphon a lot of. It, I mean, that's it, it. It's too small a thing to say it siphons energy out of productive things and puts them into unproductive. You have the whole genius of Microsoft. Well, this was a company that was agile. It was under the leadership of Gates, swinging on a dime to embrace whole new business opportunities. They pivoted to take the internet really seriously after having not taken it, taken it seriously enough for a while. And um, just, I mean, it was a, it, just a, one could read biographies of this period and the influence of Microsoft and Apple back on one another as they each started taking this seriously and how much dynamism there was that went on to improve all of our lives. Um, the whole wind was taken out of the sails of Microsoft by this. It's not an accident that I, I think that the main mind behind Microsoft left business after this case. Um, he was, they weren't able to do what they had done before. And you had the company essentially die off and become a kind of sclerotic, 
boring thing that was a joke for like 10 years and then kind of revived in the personal devices market under um, the new leadership and is doing somewhat better again. But imagine if during the period when Apple was, was creating smartphones and changing all of our lives and bringing the internet into our pockets, you had not just Steve Jobs, but Bill Gates and everything he represented, the kind of business genius that, that had created the computer revolution, doing that too. We were robbed of that. And we are probably decades behind where we would be in, uh, I think, in computing if we hadn't had that. And it's not like that helped Bryn and um, Page or anyone else. They were, you know, uh, by doing it, or at least I need some real evidence that it did. Um, on the issue, Steve, that she doesn't have that much power, she could either win tiny cases uh, or um, have spectacular defeats um, that will maybe motivate people in her direction. I mean, that's a, to me, that's a strategic question about what's the most efficient way to do your evil. But it's, I think an evil that's trying to be done here and it's an evil that has a lot of cultural momentum behind it. We had antitrust actions filed against the dominant tech platforms by a coalition of Republican governors towards the end of um, uh, you know, a few years ago, and by Democratic, not governor, sorry, um, attorneys general, and by Democratic attorneys general. We have anti-freedom um, senators, uh, anti-capitalist senators from Ted Cruz to Elizabeth Warren um, rallying to do things against the tech industry on the grounds of them being monopolists. Their particular complaints against these companies are slightly different but all of them uh, are essentially the same, resenting them for uh, having created technologies that we all use all the time, and therefore by having um, positions of special influence in the culture uh, that they've earned. And that resentment is um, among left-wing politicians and right-wing politicians. It's growing and being stoked progressively uh, in the bases of both parties. And now we have somebody who represents this hostility towards the best achievements of American business, particularly Amazon, elevated to this position of power. And how effectively she uses it, how quickly she's able to generate change in this direction uh, is a good question. But And how big a factor she's going to be versus the next person doing this versus some clever attorney general versus some uh, senators getting a, you know, finding the right compromise to craft a bill that will expand the language in the current, uh, that will expand the current antitrust balance. But this is, I think, a growing movement that we need um, vocal opposition to. And I think you can have a kind of opposition that's merely economic. Um, I don't mean merely like economic, but that's limited to here's what we can specify about the economic right. effects of this. But I think to be really effective, we need to bring in the moral picture here. What we're trying to do is hamstring companies and hamstring consumers uh, by pretending that the deals that companies make with one another and with consumers under a free market is somehow anti-competitive. I don't think in the end it makes sense conceptually. I don't think there's any proof that it has harmed competition by any standard you can come up with competition in the past. It didn't with Standard Oil, it didn't with Alcoa, it didn't with DuPont, it didn't with any of these companies, and it didn't do it with Microsoft, and it's not doing it now. And if you, you the whole thing relies on vague shifting notions of the public good. Um, the consumer welfare one is less harmful than the ones that preceded it um, because it's uh, fixed on like, are prices going up or down? And they generally are going down. But the um, this is an area of non-objective and destructive law. And I think the more attention we can put on 
on that. And the more attention we can call to the stories of what actually happened to these companies when there were these settlements against them, I think the, um, the better. Yeah. And just maybe to uh, elaborate more on your, your beliefs, Greg, I mean, you believe this because you believe in the long run, the dynamics of market competition are sufficient to kind of constrain any malbehavior that might exist in large corporate enterprises based on scale or scope or whatever. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of what underlines your belief, right? Or, or are you saying that even if, even if one could show that a, a, a competitive practice by a firm harmed consumers, that shouldn't be a basis for any kind of law to stop it? Well, it because they have the freedom to engage in those things. It depends on what we mean by malbehavior and harm. Um, certainly, there are such things as fraud, um, you know, and maybe companies who have more resources are better at covering up some cases of fraud and things like that. If there were things like that, no, competition alone is not sufficient to stop it, or may not be. And there's definitely needs to to investigate cases of fraud if there's credible evidence of fraud. And there are other, you know, actual mm -hmm. crimes like that, selling tainted goods or you know whatever things that were common law crimes uh, and well understood as crimes, or some statutory, but prior to to the Sherman Act, things that um, didn't were not actually happening in the, in any of the uh, in Standard Oil, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if we're talking about, uh, so aside from that, what are we talking about? Well, maybe prices go up rather than going down for a period in an industry. Maybe um, the choice of goods available in industry for a period goes down rather than up. Um, and those are interpreted as harms to consumers. I think those kind of things rarely happen. I don't think they really could happen over a long period of time. But um, if they did, um, by what standard would we say that those are harms to consumers? If we could really know that they're harms to the market, to consumers, to competition, to people, we could really know that. Then people who are investors could know that, and they could use that knowledge to help compete the company. Yeah, so and again, in fact, we can't do that. Belief, yeah. yeah right. So it goes back to a belief that you have about the efficacy of dynamic competition. Well, it's ultimately a belief about freedom. Okay, that that's, freedom that's works and force yeah. doesn't, and competition is a mechanism that occurs under freedom. But mm -hmm. the reason why I'm slow about saying it's about the efficacy of competition is because there's a type of view of competition that you could have from a kind of totalitarian mindset. You know, you could be Pinochet or Chi or someone and say, well, we want, here's our goals for the society that we want to impose on our society from on high. Um, we think they will be best achieved if there's more wealth we think there'll be more wealth if there's more competition. Uh, we can set up the market so that there's the right amount of competition, so that mm -hmm. there's the right amount of wealth generated and so forth. And that's what Khan thinks she's doing, right? She thinks we'll have more competition if we have mm -hmm. three companies doing what Amazon's doing instead of one and, and two Googles instead of one Google. Um, uh, so there's a kind of sense of competition where you define competition as something that you, the omnipotent government, allow to happen within the little sandbox you define for it. Mm -hmm. um, but the real sense of competition, the one that I think works and um, leads to um, uh, uh, growth and flourishing is an effect of freedom, not something that we can jerry-rig um, for um, the purposes of promoting other ends. Some of those jerry-rig things are better than the alternative that the statists uh, might impose. You know. What Pinochet did under the influence of the Chicago boys is better than some things he might have done under other influences. 
uh, economic influences, but it's not the thing that I think um, is essentially good that we shouldn't be constraining that will necessarily work. It's freedom and competition is a concomitant of freedom, not the fundamental good. It's mm -hmm. one of the mechanisms through which freedom works. Mm -hmm. That's how I think of it anyway. No. Any, any other sort of last thoughts, uh, Tom? Um, I, I think it'll be an interesting debate. I just, uh, you know, I, I know where Greg is going. It's, you know, it's based on more, it's based on more durable and important principles like freedom. But I think in the interim, just uh, anything that is done that absolves a fed, uh, that absolves a regulatory agency of any kind of accountability to a performance standard is going to be bad. Uh, and, you know, if we lose the consumer welfare standard, I think we're really at sea on a lot of issues. And, and the FTC can, can definitely in, uh, embrace a lot of mischief in that kind of an environment. So I hope it's resisted a bit. Uh, maybe another comment, too, is that I, I see this as part of a, another trend uh, in society. Like, so the, the issue of corporate governance, right, and who owns corporations and what their role ought to be, that's morphing into this you know, stakeholder analysis, which is this broader, broader trend, which uh, confuses accountability about what corporations ought to be doing. So, so I think again, like, like through these past waves in the history, the early antitrust wave, the regulatory wave, deregulatory wave, they're all based on this kind of something in the air idea that how much can we trust freedom and individual action to satisfy human wants and promote human flourishing? And how much do we need intervention. And for some reason right now, it just feels like the interventionists are on the rise. Yeah. And well, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the courts, uh, the courts end up doing. Yeah. Because I, I, I imagine that a lot of this, especially the consumer welfare standard will be, will be litigated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whether it's litigated in one foul swoop or in many small swoops, I think is the, yeah. is the question. Yeah. Well, uh, well, thank thank you thank you everyone for coming. So the, we should say before that the views expressed in this podcast don't express the views of the University of Texas or necessarily even our views tomorrow. Although you know they might. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with that, until the next episode, we'll say uh, goodbye. <laughs>